Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hello, and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Timothy Revel in New York. And I'm Christy Taylor, currently in Phoenix, Arizona. This week on the show, we're talking about how your brain knows it's time to be hungry, a mysterious ray from space, and how babies may be learning language even before they're born. And on a completely different note, why a small bat in Europe is using its penis as a hand. Na 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 bat hand. <laughs> we'll start with something completely unexpected in planetary science. We're going to the planet Mercury, which is the closest to the sun and the smallest official planet in our solar system. And a new look at the planet's pocked geography has found evidence of glaciers made of salt that might be capable of supporting life, which is just to me a wild set of words to combine, but thankfully Leia Crane is here. Hey Leia. Hi. So, Leah, I think, as you can hear in my voice, my first reaction to this story is just, there's no way Mercury is that interesting. Like, I almost never think about Mercury, and I think about space a lot. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. Um, but this discovery is really unexpected, largely because Mercury's day side is crazy hot. It's around 430 degrees Celsius, which is like 800 Fahrenheit, and it's mostly seen as extremely barren. And it's so hot there that salt behaves as something that astronomers and planetary scientists call volatile, which means that it vaporizes really, really easily. But these glaciers have probably been buried underground for a long time, which is why they've been able to survive for potentially millions of years. So take me to these salt glaciers. Help me picture them. If they're buried underground, what are they doing? How are they working? How is a glacier made of salt? All of that. <laughs> so I learned while working on this story that a glacier isn't actually, by definition, a lump of ice. It's any big lump of material that's basically solid but flows downhill because of gravity. So a salt glacier is just a big lump of salt that acts like a glacier. And we have some of these on Earth even. So th that's Earth, but how does something like a salt glacier form on a planet like Mercury? Well, we don't really know for sure. There's one leading explanation from the team that did this research, which is a process called atmospheric collapse. Mercury doesn't have a really big atmosphere, but it's got a really small one, and it may have had a bigger one in the past. And what would have happened would have been that this atmosphere could have basically turned into snow and snowed down onto the planet and done that over and over and over again 
until there's this thick layer of, of salt and ice on the planet. And then that got buried. So salt glaciers, they were just one of the first surprising things in this research. The team, they also say that this is an environment that might actually be hospitable to extremophile bacteria. Life. How could that be the case? So we know on Earth that hydrated salts can provide environments conducive to life. Microbes, not anything bigger than that. But on Mercury, these salts are buried pretty deep underground where temperatures and pressures might be temperate and not so wildly hot and low pressure. So they probably don't support life, but there could be these little habitable pockets. All right, I'm on the edge of my seat. How do we find out more about Mercury? (laughs) So one of the ways is the Bepi Colombo mission. This particular discovery was made through mostly geological measurements from the early 2010s. And Bepi Colombo, which is heading towards Mercury now, is going to take a lot more of that kind of measurement, which could help us figure out stuff like whether this buried layer of salts covers the whole entire planet or if it's just patchy. Is there any way to connect this back to all the other places in the solar system where people are excited about life? I'm thinking about all the other salty water that has excited researchers, whether it's on Mars or Europa or Enceladus. This is a little bit different because there is no evidence of liquid water. I think it's more of a thing for exoplanets because nowhere else in the solar system is all that similar to Mercury. But there are lots of places in the universe that are. So statistically, if Mercury has habitable areas, there could be a whole lot more potentially habitable planets than we thought. Next up, if you're not feeling hungry right now, you just might be after this one. Medical reporter Claire Wilson is here to talk about the discovery of cells in mice brains that seem to tell them it's time to be hungry on a regular schedule. Hi, Claire. Hello. So these cells, they tell mice to get hungry based on what time it is. Is is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's about it. Um, there seem to be several mechanisms in play, but a key controller of our hunger is a cluster of neurons in the base of our brains, and these are called AGRP cells. Now, this new research was carried out in mice, but we know that humans have these cells too, and an increased firing rate in these cells contributes to hunger. So we just didn't know exactly what causes them to fire faster. So what did this new study find out? Okay, to start with, I'd better explain that until this study came out, the main theory was that the firing rate of these GRP cells slowly rises over time as it gets longer and longer from your last meal, presumably because these cells sense diminishing levels of nutrients like sugar in your blood. Now, the new study has found that instead of that happening, their activity seems to follow your normal feeding pattern. So in mice that normally feed overnight, because mice are nocturnal animals, these cells start firing more when the mice wake up quite suddenly, and they stop firing when the sun rises, even if the mice hadn't been fed. And then when the researchers switched things about so they only provided food in the daytime for a few hours around midday, then over several days, the neuron's pattern of activity switches round to reflect that and they fire faster midday. Yeah. So why, why is it useful to have cells for that purpose, to sort of tell you that you're hungry at the time when you normally eat anyway? 
Okay, well, if you think about animals living in the wild, they probably don't have constant access to food. There may well be variability over the 24-hour cycle when there's either more or less food, depending on the ecological niche that they fill. The advantage of these cells keeping track of your past success in eating is that it makes you more motivated to go out and find food when food has been there in the past. Okay, okay, I have a question, Claire. I think most people, they actually do get hungrier as they go longer without eating. Like, we don't just have our hunger flare up at dinner time and then disappear later on, even if we haven't eaten. I say this as my neurons seem to be firing very fast for this time of day. So <laughs> that doesn't seem to reflect these results in mice that you're talking about. Yeah, well, fair enough. But I did say that these are only one mechanism involved in hunger. But you're right, we do know from our own experience, subjective feelings of hunger are affected by the time since eating on that day, as well as longer term mechanisms that keep track of, you know, if you've recently been on a diet or not. And then there's always the caveat that this was a study in mice, not people. So you, you can't assume everything translates directly. But, Christy, I have another observation about our own experiences. If you think about it, in the day, if you had breakfast and then went 12 hours without eating, I bet you'd be really hungry by the evening. But most of the time, we do go 12 hours without eating overnight, and we don't bat an eyelid over that. You know, we, we get up and think, yeah, we'd like breakfast if you usually eat breakfast. But you don't think, oh, no, I've not eaten for 12 hours. <laughs> So that does seem consistent with something in our bodies keeping track of when our normal meal times are. All right, that's a good point. Yeah, I, th I think these brain cells, they're not the whole explanation for hunger, but they do seem to be part of it. And, and not least because, the, you know, these new weight loss injections like um, the drug Ozempic, also called Wegovy and semaglutide. We know these act at least partly by lowering activity in these very brain cells we've just been talking about. So it does seem that more and more people are starting to use these drugs and maybe even more will in future. So we'd better understand exactly how they work. Oh, and the last thing I want to say is that there are other implications from these results. So it suggests that it is better to stick to a regular eating pattern if you don't like feeling hungry. And they also suggest that over time, we can get used to different eating patterns. If you've been listening to our bi-weekly podcast, Dead Planet Society, you know Chelsea White and Leah Crane have left a lot of cosmic rubble this fall. They extinguished the sun, chopped the moon in half, and this week they have shaved the earth into a cube shape for two back-to-back -back episodes. That's right, we're sending off season one in style, with all the weird effects a cube shape might have on our magnetosphere and gravity. Take a listen when you get a chance, and that's already right there in the New Scientist's podcast's feed. And bide your time while we get another season ready to go into the oven. And as one podcast closes, another one opens. Coming next week, we're kicking off a special three-part series on the complex, controversial plant known as cannabis. To you, maybe it's marijuana or weed, the devil's lettuce, you know the drill. Our reporting team has been working for months to uncover where weed came from, what we know about how it affects our brains and bodies, and how our relationship with this plant may change into the future. Follow me as we first dig into our history with herb, which our species has been growing for longer than you might think. Around 2000 BC, the Western Eurasian steppe was home to a nomadic people called the Scythians, and they carried it on horseback from the Middle East to what is now Russia and Ukraine. Whenever groups of people exchanged goods with others, cannabis went too. 
farmers, trade, conquest, you name it. Plus, to celebrate this wealth of weed reporting, mark your calendars for a special live event coming this Tuesday. How much do you know about cannabis and how much of that is actually true? Health reporter Grace Wade is hosting a virtual event with leading cannabis specialist Peter Grinspoon about the current state of research. From potential medical benefits to the known risks and side effects, he'll separate the science from the hype. That's coming up this Tuesday, November 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll have a link in the show notes at newscientist.com slash podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week, we've got news of a very, very powerful extraterrestrial visitor to Earth. But I don't mean Superman. Instead, it's a super energetic particle called a cosmic ray from a mysteriously empty region of space that may change our current understanding of the universe. No big deal. Reporter Alex Wilkins is here. Alex, give us the details. What was this cosmic ray doing when we detected it? Well, first, just one point. It's not just very powerful. It's the second most powerful cosmic ray we've ever detected. The researchers have given it a name. They've called it Amaterasu, which is named after the Japanese Shinto sun goddess. And it appears to have hit Earth with an energy of 244 exa-electron volts, which is equivalent to the energy of a tennis ball, moving at nearly 100 kilometers per hour, all squeezed into a subatomic-sized particle. That's incredible. I mean, I picture cartoon lasers when I hear the word, but a cosmic ray is really just a single subatomic-sized particle. Yeah, so cosmic rays can be a variety of different particles. They can be charged nuclei, they can be single protons, but basically they're at the scale of an atom and they're produced by all sorts of different cosmic processes. In the sun, for example, it's showering us with cosmic rays all of the time, but the very highest energy cosmic rays are much rarer and quite mysterious. Scientists think that they're produced in really violent astrophysical events like gamma ray bursts or supermassive black holes. But we've only ever detected four particles, including Amaterasu, above 200 exa-electron volts. So we really don't have good data on what kinds of events are producing these particles. And doing the detective work of matching them up with potential sources is really, really hard. So what do we know about that? Do this new particle, do we know whereabouts in the universe it came from? So this is the fun and really interesting part. It seems to have come from a region of the sky that is empty, known as a cosmic void. There's barely any galaxies there and none that could plausibly produce a particle of this energy. One of the researchers, when I was speaking to him, told me that when he first saw the detection, he thought he maybe made some mistake, but then 
afterwards he thought no we've actually detected this and he thought oh it's really unlucky that it came from a region of space that didn't have anything in it then he thought a bit more and he thought actually it is really lucky because he's now got a cosmic mystery on his hands which is absolute catnip for scientists they love events that have no obvious explanation yeah we've got a cosmic mystery on our hands i love that (laughs) phrase this is all very mysterious so what are the candidates what could this particular cosmic ray actually be so it's possible that the cosmic ray, which is likely a charged particle, veered off course from magnetic fields after it was produced and actually came from some other distant part of the sky. But at the extremely high energies that this particle appears to have, the change of direction can't have been that great because the higher energy something is, the, the less it's deviated. Unless, of course, our models of extragalactic magnetic fields are incorrect, which is possible. Another quirk in this whole equation is the cosmic microwave background, which is this background buzz of radiation from the Big Bang. And that limits how far these ultra energetic rays can travel because they interact and the really um, distant ones would have been dissipated before they got to Earth. So that means it can only have come from relatively close to us in the universe. And we should be able to see all close by galaxies that are in the void. But there are other explanations. If if the charged particle was a more exotic phenomena that doesn't interact with the cosmic microwave background at all, then it could have come from much more distant galaxies that we can't detect. So basically, either our models are wrong, there's stuff we can't see, or there's something exotic and new going on that we don't quite understand. That's so exciting. And it's so weird. Clearly, we need more data, Alex. So I guess that means we just have to wait around for the next cosmic ray to come flying past. Yeah, so more data is what everyone wants, but we might be waiting quite some time. The four particles above 200 exo-electron volts I mentioned earlier have happened over a 30-year time span. There are scheduled upgrades to telescopes that can detect these kinds of particles happening over the next few years, so we might be able to detect them slightly more frequently, but events this energy are really, really rare, so I think this will stay a mystery for the foreseeable future. We've all heard of the stories of soon-to-be parents playing classical music to their pregnant bellies in the hopes of boosting fetal development, or just talking to said belly to try to familiarise unborn babies to their parents' voices. Well, now it turns out that just talking could enhance the baby's language skills and ability to recognise specific languages whilst they are still in the womb. Our reporter Chen Lai joins us from London to tell all. Hi, Chen. Hi. So talk us through this very calmly, like we are babies in the womb. What's going on? Well, I'll try my best. So we all know that babies can start to hear sounds outside of their mother's body at around seven months into the pregnancy. At this stage, some studies have shown that babies can recognise their mother's voices as well as music. So a team at the University of Padua in Italy wanted to see if the language that their mother spoke to them made a difference. How do you actually go about that? I mean, you can't give a vocabulary test to a fetus. Yeah, it's not quite as simple as that. So the team monitored the brain signals of 49 newborn babies between one to five days old who had French-speaking mothers and tested whether they responded differently to an audiobook of Goldilocks and the Three Bears told in their mother's language compared to the same audio in Spanish or English. It's a classic book too. So what did they find? So each of the babies listened to seven-minute excerpts of French, Spanish and English in different orders, followed by three minutes of silence. 
Interestingly, the team found that the babies that listened to French exhibited a spike in a type of brain signal known as long-range temporal connections. In other words, the French audio triggered a part of the brainwaves that's been linked to speech perception and processing. What's more, the team found that babies that listened to French last would have a sustained spike of brain activity. Okay, so so they would have this effect longer if they heard their mother's language last. Does this mean that babies can recognize and react to French differently because they heard their parents speak it during their time in the womb? Yeah, exactly. So this prenatal exposure acts as a boost to their language learning skills, allowing them to identify their mother tongue as one that's important and one that they need to learn. For soon-to-be parents, it's actually quite good news. So even just going out about in your daily lives, you know, going shopping, chatting to your neighbour can provide enough speech to support your baby's brain development, even in the womb. Christy, our life form of the week today, I must warn you, is a little bit risque. It's an amazing story about bats reproducing in a way never before seen in mammals and about them having huge penises. Yes, I love a good genitalia story. Well, today is your lucky day. Well, first off, huge is by bat standards, but it is indeed huge. Male serotine bats, that's a species very common in Europe, well, they have penises that can be as much as 20% of their body length when erect. And the heart-shaped tip of their penises is also, weirdly, about seven times as wide as the vaginal opening of female serotine bats. And that got researchers wondering, well, how do these bats actually have penetrative sex? So, as one does, they sat down and watched over a hundred videos of the bats copulating. Yeah, no pressure or anything to the bats. Did they find out anything interesting? Yeah, well, they discovered something pretty amazing, and that's that these bats... They don't have penetrative sex. Instead, the males use their penises like a hand to pull aside a membrane that covers the female's vulva, and then they rest the tip at the opening. And then they just sort of stay like that until the deed is done, which usually takes about an hour. And what's particularly amazing is that this has never been seen before in mammals, as in every other mammal uses penetration to reproduce, at least that we know of. However, This is actually very similar to how birds reproduce, because they have this opening called a cloaca that is used for both excretion and reproduction. And to mate, they hold their cloacas together to pass sperm to the female. All right, Tim, how would you like a robot that picks up your clothes off the floor? I mean, I would would love one, though, of course, personally, I would never leave an item of clothing on the floor. Right. Well, this comes from a team at the University of California in Berkeley, and they've designed a robot that it uses this combination of a camera and a clothing-recognizing artificial intelligence program to pick clothes off the floor and put them in a laundry basket. So you'd think this is a very easy task, right? But for robots, it's actually pretty hard. They have to work out where the edges of clothes are, uh, how items get grouped together. But this robot seemed to do pretty well with a test that involved 10 items— It even managed to empty the laundry basket in order to start the task again. How does it actually work? I mean, I'm picturing a few cases where it goes wrong and suddenly my favorite pair of pants have been ripped in half by this robot. (laughs) Well, that's the catch somewhat. It's definitely not as fast or efficient as a human. It's only got one arm, so sorting tasks are also going to be slower and harder for it. But also one researcher has noted that, you know, just giving the robot a second arm could also be risky. Robots aren't currently great at coordinating motion between two limbs, and so that's where you get the risk of tearing your pants in half. 
So this is something that's more likely to be helpful sometime in the next decade as opposed to next year. But especially if it can be trained to sort and place items beyond clothing, it has the potential to be really helpful to everyone from people with disabilities to teenagers. All right, one little news item for you to think about this weekend. Plants in Europe are more productive on the weekend. They actually photosynthesize more, which is the reaction they undergo to turn the sun's energy plus some water and carbon dioxide into sugar. Everyone's working for the weekend, huh? Well, <laughs> since the weekend is a construct we came up with, why are plants working on our schedule? Yeah, it's, it's quite strange that, but the answer appears to be also down to us, it's air pollution. Now, the research team looking at this, they were originally trying to find out how rising air pollution related to wildfires, dust and other human activities and how that might affect plant photosynthesis. And you can measure that by using satellites to see how much light plants are emitting via their green photosynthesizing pigment chlorophyll. And when air pollution was high, photosynthesis was lower. Probably because pollution particles in the air block sunlight, which means plants have less energy available to make their food. But in addition to dips in photosynthesis that corresponded with those long-term pollution trends, they also found this weekly pattern across 64% of Europe where photosynthesis was higher on the weekend. And that's probably because Europeans just don't drive as much on the weekend, nor is there as much industrial activity. And in fact, this also happened at the height of the COVID pandemic as well, throughout, all week long and week after week. So this actually seems like a bad news story then. It's not that plants are more productive on the weekends so much as they're less productive during the week. Yeah, sort of the opposite of us. And that's a <laughs> fair point. And one that the research team, they also made as well. But the good news here is that they've calculated that we could expect plants to help remove 41 million more tons of CO2 per year if they could live full time within the kind of air quality that we experienced during that pandemic period. So if we cleaned up air quality, obviously that would have the benefit of improving our air, but it could also improve the amount of CO2 that plants are sucking from the atmosphere. So a double whammy good news effect that's it for this week thank you so much for listening you can find all the stories we talked about today in the show notes and you can subscribe to this podcast on whichever app you're listening on plus if you like the great stories we're bringing you please give us a rating or review on spotify and apple podcasts we love talking about this stuff and we really love hearing your thoughts about it too we'll be back next week that's bye for now bye Na 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 bat hands. Uh, that's gonna be stuck in my head all day. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.